Let's pray. To you, O Lord, we lift up our souls. O our God, in you we trust. Let us not be put to shame. Let not our enemies exalt over us. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Make us to know your paths, O Lord. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us, for you are the God of our salvation. For you we wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from old. Remember not the sins of our youth or our transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember us for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore you instruct sinners in the way. You lead the humble in what is right. You teach the humble your way. Lord, I thank you for Psalm 25. It is a, is a complete furnishing of all of our cavernous needs before you this morning. We are so grateful for your desire to work through your word on mornings like this. And we stand in great need of your Holy Spirit. So would you come, Holy Spirit, and, and do all of the things that we, we cannot do with this word. Help us to understand and to love and treasure and trust and to obey and to walk away changed. We pray that Jesus would be lifted up and seen as mighty and sufficient Savior this morning, in whose name we pray. Amen. The last two weeks, we've stepped into our summer preaching series entitled, Spreading the Fragrance of the Knowledge of Him, a Biblical Study of Missions and Evangelism. And our goal for the first half of this summer is to learn from the scriptures, what this thing called missions is all about. The last two weeks, we've learned that missions is the task of making disciples of Jesus by crossing over into a culture that does not have access to the gospel. We're getting used to this definition, and that's good. Missions is the task of making disciples of Jesus by crossing over a culture into a people who would not otherwise have access to Jesus. And our mission as a church is to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ. So missions is just the global application of that mission. Nothing fancy or surprising about that goal. It's found in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, and it follows the expansion of the church through the New Testament. So far, so good. But it's at this point where we need to ask, I think, a, a crucial question. If our understanding of mission and missions are firmly rooted in the 27 books of the New Testament, which they ought to be, what about the other five-sixths of the Bible? The 27 books of the New Testament inform our practice of missions, and that is fantastic. But what about the first 39 books of the Bible? In other words, what does the Old Testament have to contribute to our understanding of what missions is and how we do missions? Another way to ask this question is, 
What was the mission of Israel in the Old Testament? Did they, did they have a mission? And if Israel had a mission, could it be written down and put on a Sunday morning bulletin or up on the, the website of the people of Israel? And you start to think about it, what you discover is that this is probably a topic that you haven't given a lot of thought to. I sure haven't. But it's a fascinating question. And it lays the groundwork for any understanding of missions in the New Testament. The answer is incredibly illuminating and very practical for us as a church as we seek to be faithful to be and make disciples of Jesus and to be a part of the work of missions. So in other words, our church's mission is clarified and it's intensified when we consider the mission of Israel in the Old Testament. Our church's mission is both clarified and intensified as we consider the mission of Israel in the Old Testament. And I'll give you a minute to turn there if you haven't already. I hope you do have it open, or you will have it open momentarily. Exodus 19, verses 1 to 6. As Matt said, it's page 60 in the Red Bibles. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 1. Our church's mission is clarified and intensified when we consider the mission of Israel in the Old Testament. There's, there's three points today, two from which are drawn directly out of the text, and the third is an application of the first two as we seek to make application in the 21st century. So here's the first point today. Just like Israel, God rescues us by grace through faith in Him. Just like Israel, God rescues us by grace through faith in Him. Look with me now at the first four verses of chapter 19 in Exodus. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. Okay, so verse 1 takes place on the, the third new moon after Israel's escape from Egypt. It's three months, 12 weeks, in other words, after they crossed the Red Sea. And in verse 4, which is where we kind of want to drill down for a few minutes here, verse 4, God reminds Israel through Moses of the unforgettable way of, of exactly how they were rescued. It's a dynamite picture. Exodus 19.4, God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Okay, let's, let's stop and consider this. The rescue of the people of Israel. The Lord describes the rescue of Israel as being carried on eagles' wings. It's a, it's a relatively frequent image in the Old Testament. We see it in Deuteronomy 32. We also see it in Isaiah 40. The image of the Lord as an eagle is particularly fitting for a number of reasons. On the one hand... Eagles are known for being extraordinarily tender toward their young, toward their own. 
They look out for their feeble and scrawny little ones with remarkable care and attention. So Deuteronomy 32.11, Moses describes God's attention for Israel this way. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings and catching them and bearing them on its pinions. On the other hand, eagles can be vicious predators, can't they? They can. They can be nasty, nasty toward enemies, sweet toward their own, but horrific toward their enemies, as the Egyptians found out. Verse 4, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians. So in the first four verses, God is reminding the Jewish people of how he set them free. How he liberated and released them from slavery. And he did it as deftly and as swiftly as an eagle effortlessly swooping down to catch her young. And as frighteningly as an eagle with talons bared ready to pounce upon the enemy. And just like Israel, God rescues us by grace through faith in Him. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8-9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Israel was rescued the same way that we are, by grace through faith. Not by works. The Lord is so clear in verse 19, or verse 4 of chapter 19. I brought you to myself. And he still does it today. Think of all of the things that God must do if a person is going to be rescued. God convicts us of sin. God draws us to Christ. God grants us new birth. God gives us gifts of repentance and faith. So if you're a Christian today, God made you one. He has borne you on eagle's wings. He's brought you to himself. By grace, you have been saved. So have you been rescued? Are you sure? Is your faith in him, is it genuine? You may profess faith in Christ, but do you actually possess faith in Christ? You say, How can I know for sure? I'll tell you how. The answer is in point two. We just follow into verses five and six. Second point today. Just like Israel, God rescues us so that we will obey Him and be holy. Just like Israel, God rescues us so that we will obey Him and be holy. Look with me at Exodus 19. Verses 5 and 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you should be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Remember how much Israel contributed to their own rescue. Not much. Nothing. Verse 4, I brought you to myself. It reminds me of the explanation of the Apostle Paul of the gospel in Romans 
8.4, where Paul says, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God rescued Israel too. Israel didn't rescue Israel. And now that they're saved, he's got a mission for them. Here it is, verse 5. Obey my voice. Keep my covenant. Be a holy nation. Now, the exact same rhythm is throughout the New Testament. It's just the drum beats are just more intense. Uh, recall once again what Paul says in Ephesians 2 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. Next verse. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared for us beforehand that we may walk in them. Or 1 John 2, 4 and 6, we see it even more clearly. John is, he levels with us. He says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So somebody might be listening right now and be thinking, so you're saying that I can know I'm a Christian by the perfection of my life? To which the Bible would answer, no. But you do know if you are a Christian based upon the direction of your life. Just like Israel, God rescues us by grace through faith in Him. And just like Israel, God rescues us so that we will obey Him and be holy. This is of shattering importance to me as a pastor. This is, I think, probably week in, week out, the thing that I I think the most about as I minister to people. To acquaint myself and each one of us again and again with the true nature of saving faith. The character of it, what it's like. We believe that God's justifying grace must not be separated from its sanctifying power and purpose. I hope that sentence might be relatively familiar to you because I just took it from our Article 8 of our Evangelical Free Church Statement of Faith. Article 8, Sentence 1. We believe that God's justifying grace must not be separated from its sanctifying power and purpose. Grace is both pardon for sin and is power for sinners. God rescues us so that we will obey Him and be holy. How do you know if your profession of faith is not just profession of faith, but possession of the faith? How do you know? Well, you, you keep His commandments. You obey Him, trembling for the joy set before you in the strength that He supplies You obey Him. Anyone can say they believe. Far fewer obey. You say, well, isn't our salvation just like Israel's? God rescues us by grace. He's holy. I'm a sinner. The wages of sin is death. And unless He swoops down and, and saves me, I'm toast, right? Isn't God in the business of transferring me to safety? Yes, and he's also in the business of transforming you into a saint. 
You say, well, I've, I've got a root of faith. And God is asking you today, do you have the fruit of faith? As we think about mission, this is so important. Unbelievers can't see the root of faith, but they can sure see the fruit of faith in your life. Listen to this, this dynamic. Uh, it's in the next chapter, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, where God begins to give his people the Ten Commandments. If you've never seen this in the Scriptures before, this will knock you out of your seat. Exodus 20, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. See that? First he transfers them to safety. And then he begins the incremental work of transforming them into saints. The imperatives flow from the indicative. God's grace justifies. God's grace sanctifies. God's grace pardons our sin. It empowers us sinners. God's grace isn't just forgiveness. It's fortitude. It's strength and resilience and resources to put our sin to death. John Owen once said, God will justify us from our sins, but he will not justify the least sin in us. That's true. God will justify us from our sins, but he will not justify the least sin in us. Another thing Owen said is that not to be daily killing our sin is to sin against the God who's furnished us with the power of doing it. Not to be daily killing your sin is to sin against the God who has furnished us with the power of doing it. Just like Israel, God rescues us so that we will obey Him and be holy. Now here's the application point. All of this is tied up in verses 5 to 6, and we need to see how this connects to our study of missions. And here it is. So first, first two points. Just like Israel, God rescues us by grace through faith in Him. Second point, just like Israel, God rescues us so that we will obey Him and be holy. Third point, application today. Totally unlike Israel, we are sent on a worldwide rescue mission to proclaim the excellencies of the Messiah King. Totally unlike Israel. We are sent on a worldwide rescue mission to proclaim the excellencies of the Messiah King, Christ the King. Now, I, I want to put an image in your mind. I sure hope this is helpful. This is either going to sink or swim, so let's hope it swims. I've referenced this movie before. It's one of my favorites. 20 years ago, Jack Nicholson, Tom Cruise, A Few Good Men, right? The cultured church here. We've, how many have seen this? A Few Good Men. All right. For those who haven't, here's the plot in a word or two. There's been a murder of an American Marine, Private Santiago, who was stationed in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. He was killed by two members of his own platoon. It was a an ex, uh, situation of a disciplinary measure gone far wrong. And the circumstances surrounding Santiago's death are shrouded in mystery, But the basic question that they're trying to answer with the movie is, was his death a result of an order that was given by a high-ranking colonel, played by Jack Nicholson? 
And the colonel initially claims that the order uh, that he gave was actually one for Santiago to be transferred off the base because his life was in grave danger from the other Marines in his platoon. He even says that he arranged for a transfer order. He had a flight set to leave, and it was set to leave just hours after it turns out that he was accosted and murdered by those in his platoon. Well, Tom Cruise's character isn't buying it because he has inventoried Santiago's room. And it dawned on him during the unfolding of the court case that not one bag had been packed. Not one letter had been written to mom saying, I'm coming home soon. Not one phone call had been placed from his barracks to let friends know he'd be on his way and like a ride at the airport when he gets in town. And yet the colonel stands by the claim that Private Santiago was set to leave anyway. Here's the connection with today's topic. Remember our initial question. What was God's mission for Israel in the Old Testament? Answer, obey me and be holy. But did Israel have a mandate from the Lord to press into the surrounding nations with the message that Yahweh saves? Was Israel called to proselytize anyone? Were they called to make cross-cultural converts of the one true God? Think about the a few good men situation. Was Israel so pumped about their rescue from Egypt, so jealous to obey the Lord's mandate to proselytize? Israel was so concerned about the fate of the perishing nations that they told precisely no one. Think about the absence of evangelism in the Old Testament. It's startling as you read through the pages of the first 39 books of Scripture. Why doesn't that scenario fit? Because Israel's mission was not a cross-cultural one. Yes, they taught their children the Scriptures and who the Lord is. And yes, they could and did incorporate outsiders like Rahab and Ruth. And yes, Israel will figure into God's end times designs as, as Jerusalem begins to raise prominence on the world stage and the, Lord, or the world turns their attention to Jerusalem. Yes to those things. But it is stunning to realize that Old Testament Israel never had what we would call an evangelistic mandate. Ever. They never had a command to proselytize the nations. It's not there. That's amazing. Why not? Because the one thing that we know is the one thing they didn't. The identity of their Messiah. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. 
It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Or listen to the way that Paul says it in Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 4. Paul says to the saints in Ephesus, You can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known in other generations as it's now been revealed. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promises in Jesus Christ through the gospel. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Angels long to look into these things. Jesus is a treasure worth talking about. Yes, he is. Israel didn't have this mandate because they didn't have this knowledge. But we do. We do. In 1637, Puritan Samuel Rutherford wrote a letter to his friend William Dalglish. And in two sentences, Rutherford sums up, I think, the exquisite privilege that Christians have over Old Testament Israel. Here are the two sentences. Dear brother, let Christ be dearer and dearer to you. Let the conquest of souls be top and root, flower and bloom of your joys and desires on this side of the sun and moon. Friends of Mount Free Church, would you grab your bulletins and pull out your list of five? A little cream-colored card here. This is the tool that may well change somebody's eternity that's already in your sphere of influence right now. Can you think of five people who don't have saving faith in Jesus Christ? Five people, I would add, too, that aren't connected to any local church. There's a lot to choose from. A lot of churches, but there's a lot more people not connected to them. Flip it over, and you look at some prayer points here. Pray for the salvation of unbelievers. These are all gifts that we have as a church that Israel did not have. Pray for the Holy Spirit to convict people of their sin. Pray for God to draw them to Christ. Pray for open doors for evangelism. Here's one that I wrestle with constantly. Take an interest in someone else outside of yourself. People are fascinating. They are. Ask God to help you see, to be politely curious about people in their story. Ask God for courage not to be ashamed of the gospel. Ask God for clarity to explain the message of Jesus simply, faithfully. When that door opens, pray ahead of time. Pray in the morning that you would be ready when the door opens. Oftentimes the door opens and we're not ready. Pray that God would prepare you to give an answer for the hope that you have. Pray for your tone. It should be gentle, respectful, wise, gracious, bold. Those are all New Testament prayers for evangelism. 
and pray for opportunities to plant and water and then just be satisfied with the God that gives the growth. Five names, maybe one of them might come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And you could lead them to this fellowship. These five names are not an imposition to you. It's an invitation to you. An invitation into which angels long to look. An invitation with Israel knew nothing about. Our church's mission is clarified and intensified when we consider the mission of Israel in the Old Testament. And just like Israel, God rescues us by grace through faith in Him. Just like Israel, God rescues us so that we will obey Him and be holy. Your holiness is an awful weapon in the hand of God. But totally unlike Israel, we are sent on a worldwide rescue mission to proclaim the excellencies of the Messiah King. As we think about the connection between um, evangelism and missions, remember what we've been focusing on the last couple of weeks. Whatever we're manufacturing here locally is what we will be exporting globally. What we grow in these fields is what we load on the trucks. So let's go and send in the name of Christ across continents. But let's also take the gospel to lost people we know that are across the street and across the office and across the lake and across your classroom. You serve what's in your cupboard. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Follow Jesus and he will make you become a fisher of men. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the the recipe for faithful outreach is not a mystery. We see all the seeds of it right in Exodus 19, except for one glaring omission. Lord, I, I pray that we would be a church that daily marvels that we know you, that Jesus Christ gave his life He suffered and died for us. You love us so much, you gave your one and only Son. Whoever should believe in him would have eternal life. And Lord, when that eternal life is ours, that we would live in the strength that you supply, that we would know that it is spiritual fruit, that's all people can see. They can't see the root of our faith, but they can see the genuineness of our faith. And love and joy and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And I pray that our church would be pulsing with those things. But Lord, unlike Israel, that we would not be a holy huddle of people. But that the transfer to safety that each one of us has experienced and the transformation into the likeness of Christ that each one of us are knowing now, if we know Jesus, that that would transition to great concern for those outside of our fellowship, outside of the grace of God. Lord, use this list of five. I pray that you would multiply the work of Christ through this church. I pray that we would see many come to see and fear and put their trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, may this season be a new one for our church create new conditions new opportunities new possibilities 
Lord, ordinary people led us to Jesus. May ordinary people like us lead others. In whose name we pray. Amen. Would you stand as you're able? A reminder that we have every Sunday, we have an elder down here in front who would love to pray for you. That elder this morning is Greg Walters. And so if you'd like to um, connect with one of the shepherds of our church, if he can bring you before the throne of grace, he'd love to do that. And Greg will be right here after the benediction, which I trust you will receive by grace through faith now. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.